Welcome to Transform Now, the podcast brought to you by robotic process automation pioneer, SSNC Blue Prism. Digital transformation has the potential to reshape the way companies service their customers, engage their employees, and manage their operations. Whether you're looking to develop strategies, tactics, or best practices to positively impact the future of work, or you're curious to see how other companies have successfully navigated their digital transformation programs, then this podcast is for you. We're here to help you transform now. Hello, everyone. I'm Brad Hairston with SSC Blue Prism. Welcome to the Transform Now podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have two guests on the show, one of whom is a returning guest, Tom Davenport, visiting professor at the University of Oxford and distinguished professor at Babson College. Also with us is Stephen Miller, Professor Emeritus at Singapore Management University. Both Tom and Steve are renowned experts in areas such as AI, data science, machine learning, and many other topics. And today I will be talking with them about the book they recently co-authored titled Working with AI, Real Stories of Human-Machine Collaboration, which will be released next month by MIT Press. Gentlemen, welcome. Why don't you provide a little bit more background on yourselves before we get going? Tom, we'll start with you. I'm a professor at Babson and visiting at Oxford, as you suggested. I teach mostly AI these days to business school students. And for a long time, I've either been a professor or did research and thought leadership in consulting firms and almost always on the topic of how people and organizations can benefit from information and technology. And been working with AI now for seven or eight years on this round. And certainly as Steve knows, there were previous rounds of excitement about AI and I also was somewhat involved in those. Great. Steve, how about you? Most of my professional career has kept close to the rail of how people use new forms of both physical automation and computer-based information to do work in new ways. I've done that both on the university and academic side through PhD work and early career as an assistant professor, looking at ways in which people were using the new generation of robotics back decades ago. And then I went into industry for 13 years both in Japan and the United States to be a practitioner. That's what brought me to Singapore to work for IBM Consulting for a few years in e-business consulting. Then I joined a university in Singapore for 18 years and was the founding dean of their computing and information systems school. And of course, that allowed me from an R&D perspective and also from a student project perspective to work closely with industry on these topics. Well, it's wonderful to have you both on the show today. And Tom, let me start with you. You were on the podcast a little over a year ago, talking with me about why companies are struggling to implement AI at scale. And by the way, this was the third most popular podcast of the year. So let me just pause and congratulate you on that front. Only third, Um, I demand a recount. (laughs) (laughs) No recounts, no recounts allowed. So has anything changed on this front? Uh, Are are companies still stuck in the POC pilot phase and failing to scale their AI capabilities the way they should? Can you touch on that? 
Well, I think it's getting somewhat better, Brad. There are still a lot of AI systems that never get implemented, but now there are companies, in fact, I just finished a book on this as well, coincidentally, at more or less the same time as one with Steve, on companies that are, quote, all in on AI. And we didn't find a lot of them, but some companies are really being quite aggressive about it. And in a way, coming back to our book, Working with AI, when you see how challenging it is to do a full production deployment, you kind of understand why there aren't more of them than there are. It takes a lot of people working together for a long time in many cases. Mm. Uh, let me just add one point to what Tom said, because Tom mm -hmm. has traced the arc of how large corporations have brought in so many generations of new technology mm -hmm. related to information. Industries struggle with implementing anything at scale that involves major changes in how they work. So there's nothing mysterious about AI here, although AI does involve some new ingredients, right? But there's always a diffusion curve. There's mm -hmm. always a bunch of people who are out there fast. There's always the rest of the 90%. There's always the trailing 30 or 40%. So like any other wave of technology, we're seeing that diffusion process and that distribution as applied to this leveling up with AI embodiment. Mm, great point. Steve, as mentioned in the intro, you and Tom recently co-authored a book focused on what real human-machine collaboration looks like and what we can learn from it. What inspired you and Tom to write this book? Let me give briefly the history. Tom and I have some common colleagues and we've met over the years. And it just happens, and Tom will remember the story, that towards the end of 2019, a new international management school journal was being launched called Management and Business Review. And for their inaugural issue, they had asked Tom to submit an article, which he did. And somehow, and could well have been through Tom's recommendation, they asked me to review the article. So this was about August of 2019. And this okay. was Tom's article. He sole authored and did it. But I put a lot of effort into the background, Tom will remember, on some of the nuancing and some of the updates on research. And It was kind of a pain in the butt, really. But, <laughs> but a knowledgeable pain in the butt, yes. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So on that, we started to talk. And Tom had already started on the path of a Future of Work Now series and had already or was in the very beginning of the process of getting out a few stories on that. And I was at a transition point in my life where I was still working full time, but thinking I was going to relinquish my full time job. And I was interested in pursuing stories of AI deployments. And one thing led to the other. And just yeah. on a verbal agreement, Tom and I talked about it. And he said, well, why don't we work together on this thing? And there we go. There you go. Yeah. So, Tom. To delve into the realities of AI workplace deployments, you and Steve, as mentioned, documented and evaluated 29 real-life case studies involving worker AI collaboration. What was the scope of these case studies? I mean, what geographies, industries, job functions, et cetera, did you cover? Yeah. 
Well, we did have 30 rounder number, but our editor didn't really like one of them, so she chopped it out. <laughs> uh, uh, we had six or seven in financial services, including insurance, several in banks. We had a number in healthcare, four. I think the one that got cut out would have made five. Some of service-oriented industries, and most of those were kind of language-oriented AI applications. We had some field operations, case studies ranging from security at a mall in Singapore, a police department in the U.S., a wide range of things, some kind of factory floor activities, only really a couple of those, I would say. So pretty broad from an industry standpoint. 22 were based on interviews out of the United States. One was based out of an interview in Canada, again, one of Tom's stories. Six, and those were six of the eight that I did, were based out of interviews out of Southeast Asia. So we were able to bring in an international flair to, to what we did. Mm -hmm. and, and it was a nice complement between principally U.S., one example from Canada, and then several examples from both Singapore, Indonesia, and India. Okay. Thank you for that information. That's good. Steve, in your research and in the book, you both cite the MIT Task Force on the Work of Future report as the most comprehensive recent study on how new technologies are changing the nature of work. So you compare and contrast your findings from these 29 case studies to three of the findings from the MIT report. What is it about the MIT report that retains its relevancy so well and convinced you to make it a comparative baseline for your research? Our book, yeah. in the main, is written for a business audience, for people like you who really want to understand the different use cases. What are mm -hmm. people doing with AI? And a micro look based on real stories and industry. And of course, our emphasis on augmentation, which we'll get into later. People and machines okay. working together. And based on that, we have insights chapters. But in, in the main, they're more relevant for either people who are employees or places of work and managers in work. It's not to say other people wouldn't find it interesting. The MIT project is really written as a public policy project, and they take a more economy-wide view. And they looked at decades of research, and they also had case studies, and we had some overlap. The few case studies they did were in great depth. We looked at a wider range of industries. But the reason I came back and used them as a benchmark was because of the fact that it was a way of validating our observations. We had a rich but small sample, what people might call thick data versus big data, and mm -hmm. very informative, but it was still a small sample. And what we also saw in the MIT report was this bit about technology is not replacing human labor in mass anytime soon. It's replacing some existing work, creating new work. It is not eliminating work in a major way and certainly mm -hmm. not quickly. We saw that same thing. It mm -hmm. also brought out the theme that organizational changes with AI, robotics, and other advanced technologies are indeed happening, but they're happening gradually. And mm -hmm. we also observe that. Now, 
as Tom knows, all of our interviews were at a snapshot in time, but through the conversations, we know that most of these were the results of most multi-year projects, right? Even though we just talked to them when they're actually up and running in operation. Our work had more examples, far more examples of augmentation than full mm -hmm. displacement through automation. They saw the same thing looking through mm -hmm. the different places they looked. And then the other point where there was a common point was the discussion about education, training, and skills. And the mm -hmm. difference in the perspective is related to the purpose of their book being different than ours. We mm -hmm. focused on firms that had been that had successfully deployed, successfully implemented. The people were sort of happy working with the systems. It was making yeah. the firm and the individual more productive. All of the learning we observed, and this was a, an insight Tom had highlighted in the contrast mm -hmm. to help me in the way I wrote it up. All of the examples we observed were through people learning on the job, learning by doing as part of doing the work. The MIT work, both in the book form and the earlier task force report, was really focused on people who were being marginalized by both changes in technology as well as other global changes impacting the nature of the income distribution. And they put more emphasis on structured approaches on K through 12 training, community college training, things like mm -hmm. that, to give people opportunities for the workforce. And whereas we focused on how people were learning within the job. Mm. Excellent. Thank you for that context, Steve. I appreciate that. I want to dive deeper on, on some of the things that you highlight in the book, some of your key findings. Many people will read a book like this and still, in the back of their mind, worry, are the humans going to make it out of this? So, Tom, should people worry that technology is replacing human labor in mass in the near future? Well, I think near future, not so much. Long-term future, I think we all need to be quite concerned about it. But we didn't find much evidence of it, as Steve suggested. And AI was kind of good at some small tasks, but not good at performing entire jobs. Most people do more than one thing in a job. And so I think what we've seen so far is mostly on the margins. I had some concerns about entry-level workers, which we have a little chapter on in the book. Steve isn't quite as concerned about them, but because I think AI is taking over the things that entry-level workers typically did. But I think none of us can be complacent about it, and we really need to be thinking about how do I add value to the work of these smart machines, and there are a whole variety of ways to do that. This is actually sort of my second book on this topic. I wrote one mm -hmm. called Only Humans Need Apply with Julia Kirby in, I think, 2016. And apparently nobody was reading books that year. They were all focused on the Clinton-Trump <laughs> election. <laughs> Didn't sell terribly well, but it suggested that augmentation was both a more desirable and more likely outcome. And so far, I think we've seen that to be true. I happened to read that book cover to cover, and I thought it was terrifically done. Yes. You were the, the one. <laughs> yeah. Brad, one of, one of the things, if you sort of delve into the world of The Economist, it's not this issue of, are human jobs going to be replaced or not? 
I mean, this mm -hmm. is part of the equation we'll get into later. What is likely to be the bigger impact is the impact on the nature of the income distribution. Mm -hmm. And you're always going to have the highly educated people and the high skilled people. They're going to be fine. And change in automation almost always creates opportunities for them. Mm -hmm. And the issue is, what about a lot of the middle skilled people, the people mm -hmm. who prepared the information and did some of the transaction work? They're not necessarily going to move up to be the high end, high paid people. And in the last 40 years in the U.S., what's happened is more of those middle school people have moved into some of the lower paid and often like gig worker types of things. So mm -hmm. one way to think about this is, will there be jobs? My, my view is that even in the long term, the issue isn't going to be the number of jobs. If anything, mm -hmm. most of the economies in the world with the largest economies, 11 of the 12, they're labor short because of fertility mm. rates and aging rates. But the issue is going to be on the nature of jobs, the quality of mm -hmm. jobs, the income distribution of the jobs. Some people will benefit tremendously from the inevitable and inexorable improvements in productivity that mm -hmm. are happening and going to happen. And the issue is, to what extent is that distributed? Right, right. Great point. Tom, what did you and Steve learn about the pace and the scope of organizational changes being driven by AI? It's slow. Next question. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as we would talk to companies, you'd kind of uncovered different layers. We wanted mostly to focus on frontline workers and how their jobs were affected by AI, but you talked to a frontline worker, if you were lucky, you'd get them first. And they'd say, well, yeah, but my boss would like to talk to you about his role. And the boss would say, well, yeah, but the IT function was involved in helping to develop this. And by the way, maybe you should talk to a customer to kind of understand what difference it's made for them. And you start to see all these people needed to collaborate. We call it in the book, it takes a village to change a job with AI. Mm -hmm. And it takes quite a while to make all of this happen. And it's sort of you're never finished. People keep revising these systems over time to make them fit the work environment better. And so, I, as I say, I think that's one of the reasons why you don't see as many production deployments of AI as you'd like. Mm -hmm. It involves change in the people and the business process and the systems and so on. And it tends to take years if not mm -hmm. days or months. From work Tom and I have separately done and from things we've been involved in over the years, often the direct investment, you know, buying this specific type of software platform, take that as your base, the direct investment. But the total investment to make a deployment work, common figures have been something in the range of 4x to 10x of the direct investment. Mm -hmm. And some of this is just the time to work through all of what people call the complementary changes. Right. What, one of the things, Brad, that I think is hard for both people in the business world and the general public to get their mind about is this simultaneity of fast and slow. Literally every week and certainly every month and few months, there are significant advances at the algorithm level. 
at the method level, at the demonstration in a lab setting. And we mm -hmm. see these things. We hear them in the news. And as Tom said, it moves much more slowly. And it's not just giant corporation deployment, but in any organizational deployment. Tom will share with you, one of his colleagues has a nice law of digital transformation that Tom has written up and quoted in some of his articles. And it's a simultaneity that organizations change slowly, yet at the same time, the rate of change of the core methods and the science is moving quickly. And it's like, how do you get your head around the fact that these two clock speeds are both occurring, but they're really different? Yeah. George's first law, George Westerman at MIT, technology changes rapidly, but people and organizations change slowly. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, the word augmentation was mentioned earlier, and that word does get used a lot these days to describe the way technology is helping human workers perform tasks. How many of your AI workforce deployment case studies would you categorize as augmentation versus automation? Well, uh, Tom and I will go back and forth on this. As I said, he was the lead author on most of the studies, but in my sort of obsession with liking to categorize things and make tables and whatnot, of the 29, I would say 26 are clearly examples of labor augmentation. And the three, they happened to be three stories Tom wrote up that were the automation examples were with the cutting of lettuce in a field using a robot machine, mm -hmm. with Seagate, with visual inspection, and then with uh, picking the pharmaceuticals in the, the pharmacy of a large hospital. It happened to be Stanford mm -hmm. Hospital, where part of the actual pick and place and packaging is automated. But even in those three cases where in a very specific way you had full task automation, there's still people in the scene. There's still mm -hmm. people as part of the larger workflow. And it, yes, the people who would cut the lettuce under the sun, the backbreaking work, they wouldn't do it if the robot machine is doing it, but there had to be the machine tender. This is from Tom's story. And there had to be the people in sort of central mission control mm -hmm. who you would call when you needed help with the machine. And it, so it's an example of some jobs displaced, some new jobs created. So Yeah, I would argue that all of them were augmentation, but certainly I would agree with Steve that the human role is less in some than others. Sometimes it's just fixing the machine or just checking mm -hmm. on what the machine has done. But there, there are human activities in every one of the case studies, certainly. Yes, but it's always been the case, Tom, from my hanging out in automotive paint shops and body shops where there's so-called fully automated processes that when you have 100% robotic spray painting, you still have people who've got to manage the process. It's always been the case that even when you have task automation, you still need people surrounding because mm -hmm. frankly, unexpected things always happen. Things always right. go wrong. Adjustments always have to be made. Things shift. And there's just things outside what the automation is designed to do. Right, right. Makes sense. Tom, what were your findings around workforce reskilling and upskilling as it relates to AI in the workplace? 
Well, it was not, as Steve suggested earlier, it wasn't particularly an institutional thing. It was people figuring out new ways to do their work now that this AI was their colleague. And I, I suppose we could fault the organizations they worked for for not training people better. But on the other hand, it I think it illustrates how hard it is. It's sort of job by job, not something where everybody would get the same training in the company. And very hard, I think, to anticipate ahead of time exactly all the skills and capabilities you're going to need to work alongside AI. So in a way now, I believe the best systems for doing this organizationally are those that say, okay, here are a bunch of different resources that you might want to learn from and we'll let you figure out, A, what you want your job to be in the future, and B, what specific skills you need to learn to take advantage of it. Maybe we can give you a few guidelines, but for the most mm -hmm. part, I think that's really hard to do. What Tom just said is also consistent with sort of what learning science people know. You learn best by doing. And right. so-called formal classes is a relatively small part about that. And to the extent that companies can create experiences that provide some structure and scaffolding for people to learn by doing along the directions of what he just explained. There's a role for formal training in that, but mm -hmm. it's not the 90%, it's the 10%. Right. right. Now, there was one other insight in the book, and it was actually Tom's idea, and we turned it into a chapter and elaborated on and Tom, why don't you explain something about this hybridization? Not that it's a new phenomenon, but we just saw so many examples of it in all the cases we looked at. Well, it's, yeah, it's hybridization of business and technology-oriented jobs. So almost mm -hmm. everybody we talked to on the front lines who was working alongside AI was quite into the technology. They understood how it worked. They could tell other people what needed to be fixed in it. They were not amateurs at all. They were sort of se at least semi-professionals in terms of mm -hmm. their technology orientation. And we sort of commented on this and said, maybe we should write a little chapter on the fact that everybody's a techie these days, or at least if you want right. to be successful in the business world, you have to become a techie. And so I do think that generic organization-wide training on digital and technological skills is a good thing to do. And you have companies like Amazon saying, well, we're not sure exactly what's going to happen to our warehouse workers, but they'll probably have a better future if we give them a lot of digital skills. And so I think that is the one example where you could do some cross-the-organization generic training and have some value in it. Once Tom brought out that point, we actually looked at the other side of it in mm -hmm. an equally avid and strong effort for the tech people to have to get domain trained and oriented and knowledgeable. Because, mm -hmm. yes, the math models, the math itself is domain independent, but the application right. of which model, under which circumstance, and the nature of the errors, and how you have to tune this stuff is so driven by the domain. And mm -hmm. equally, we saw the hybridization happening from the tech side into the domain and business side. So this 
Tom's been writing for decades and has been one of a number of observers about the business IT gap, right? I mean, that's not a new thing. And AI, to some extent, adds another level of complexity that's got a strong foot in both the business and the IT side, potentially making that gap more complicated. But Tom, would it be fair to say we were sort of pleasantly and delightfully surprised how much of the cross-functional interaction that was just evident, and that wasn't even the specific nature of our study per se, it just sort of came out in the interviews. Yeah, I think it's getting harder and harder to, if you would observe a meeting to tell who was Mm -hmm. the tech person and who was the quote business person. Right, right. Steve, your case study research did not really get into employment and labor market issues, but you reference the MIT report's findings on this topic and you emphasize the importance of it. How would you summarize this? I can summarize this briefly because, of course, there are people who are specialists in this and I'm not a labor economist, but from my best read, trying to understand the technology and work with business people. Here are the takeaways I've had from that. If you look at the United States, as well as a number of the other so-called well-developed or advanced economies, there has indeed been rising labor productivity over the last four decades, except only a small fraction of the workforce has benefited from that. The interesting point that comes out in the MIT study is that that phenomenon is more pronounced in the United States than it is in other advanced economies. So it's not the nature that if you're an advanced economy, that has to be the way it is. It's the way it is because of certain policies and ways in the U.S. in particular. And that the key issue so far not just it's been automation, it's been trade, it's been other global forces, has been that the technology has amplified and increased opportunity for the high-end, highly educated, and who've got great salaries. A Mm -hmm. lot of the people in the so-called middle skills, they would prepare information. They would help do the spreadsheets on the transactions. Things that can easily be addressed by task-level automation, there's been a reduction of employment in that middle level and an increase in employment, as I said earlier, in the lower skill levels. So it's the bifurcation and the polarization that's the issue, more so than the number of jobs. And it's more extreme in the U.S. than in other countries, but it's an object lesson for all countries. So that's one point. Okay. The second point is about the importance of innovation. Now, this is sort of non-intuitive to the non-specialist because you say, well, wait, if we drive more innovation and more use of the AI, the automation, the robotics, isn't that going to exacerbate the problem? But it turns out if you look at the history over the last 40 years in the United States, and actually since 1940, a huge share of the employment growth has been in new occupational categories that did not exist in the 1940 census. Hmm. And unless we harness the technology to create new kinds of services, new kinds of industries, we're not going to create the employment opportunities that we need 
to help with the offset of the displacement. And the interesting thing is mature industries get automated deeply, whereas new industries are very labor intensive. Right, especially right. in their early decades, like installing electric vehicle chargers and solar rooftop mm-hmm. panels and things like that. So, in fact, it's our obligation to drive innovation with this technology, while at the same time, people are, do have concerns that while doing that, what will happen to the employment? So, that's one of the things we learned from the economists. And without going into too much detail, the other thing. The economists, as reflected in the MIT report, teach us is Mm -hmm. that the future is not written. There is no predetermined outcome on the relationship between the degree of using automation and the number of jobs, the quality of jobs, the nature of the income distribution. It all depends on the choices. It depends on the micro choices of tens of thousands of employers. It depends on policy choices. For example, like in the United States, when you put money into labor, you get taxed at a much higher rate than if you put money into capital as a company. Mm -hmm. Now, surely there should be incentives for investing in new capital and technology, but not to the extent that it disincentivizes people to retain labor. So it all depends on the policies. And there's this very complicated dynamic that could go in any number of direction between displacement via automation as well as via other factors, some political, but some related to like job rationalization, right? Mm -hmm. And what's called reinstatement. And reinstatement can be through Productivity increases of existing processes, we increase existing jobs, Mm because productivity can lead to new demand. And reinstatement can occur through innovation, where these new tools let us do new things that we create new occupations, new industries. So this is the issue. How will this play out? No one knows. Anybody who tells you for sure they know the answer doesn't really understand this. (laughs) And it's sort of how do we want it to be? How will it be? And that's where the advocacy and the lobbying and the public policy all come right. in. Very good summary. Appreciate that, Steve. So we've reached the end here. I want to ask both of you just any parting thoughts on these 29 AI case studies, maybe as a bit of a teaser for your book that comes out next month. Well, I think the good news about all of this is there are still a lot of things that that AI can't do and that humans can do. And Mm -hmm. so for the foreseeable future for most of us, the period for which we're employed, I think that will continue to be the case. And we we are unlikely to have AI conducting podcasts, Brad, so you'll be happy to hear that. (laughs) We identify, we have a little chapter on what machines can't do yet anyway, and there are a lot of those things. And Humans are pretty versatile in filling those gaps, and I think they'll continue to be. Steve, anything to add? I have two takeaways. I think the 29 stories, all 29 of them, without exception, are examples of how a person's capability to do work can be augmented in a way that their capability is amplified. 
their contributions are amplified. Now, mm-hmm. this does have implications where if each person gets more productive, maybe they can slow down hiring. So this is Tom's point about the silent firings related to entry-level jobs and things like that, and that's true. But you get cascading productivity effects that if the firm's doing well because it's more productive, it will indirectly sort of lead to generating activity that will generate employment. So we give 29 examples where it isn't the use of AI-enabled machines or people. They're all examples of people working with AI-enabled machines. So people Mm -hmm. should look for these opportunities. The other big takeaway that I take out from some of the subtleties of these cases is that these companies at a given point in time, and admittedly this frontier will change, set boundaries on what they want the machine to do versus the human. Now, admittedly, that boundary will shift over time, but I'll tell you something that will not shift over time and will continue to be true for generations to come, is that there's always going to be a flexibility versus efficiency trade-off. And automation undoubtedly makes things more efficient. And computer-controlled automation and AI-enabled automation does indeed make automation itself somewhat more adaptable. Mm-hmm. That said, it's still adaptable within constraints. And as the macro environment changes, and as the rules of the game change, and as there's global instability and all kinds of things like this, as much as people don't like to change in the workplace, the irony is the greatest capability of humans is adaptability. Hmm. And I have seen examples, a number of examples, both with AI and physical automation, where companies have sort of constrained the degree to which they want to take the automation because they want to maintain the flexibility to deal with uncertainties, unpredictabilities, and change. Now, the boundaries of that will change over time. I don't think the principle will. So this is why I don't think there'll be threats to employment, even in decades or generations to come. But the nature of that employment and the nature of the income distribution is a serious issue and threat. Well said. Tom and Steve, I cannot wait for the book to be released. And I look forward to reading it and delving into these case studies. Thanks to both of you for being on the show, providing more background behind the book. I appreciate both of you being here and I wish you the very best. Brad, I want to thank Tom for the idea of having this book and for being the one who got a lot of the content initially generated. And we talk about machines and machine learning. I had a fantastic experience learning from working from such a master craftsman. It was a good collaboration. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Transform Now. For more insightful discussions on digital transformation and more, check out our podcast channel where you'll find all of our previous episodes. And to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review. For more information about digital transformation and the future of work, check out blueprism.com to learn how SSNC Blueprism's digital workforce is enabling enterprise transformation now.